Hello, Sam here. Just a little pre-pod shout-out, we wanted to let you know that we are doing a live show at London's King's Place, next to King's Cross Station, on Saturday, the 11th of September, as part of the London Podcast Festival. The show starts at midday, and tickets are just £9.50. That includes the screening of an under-90-minute movie, and a live podcast recording with a special guest. So if you're free on Saturday the 11th, we'd love to see you there. More info on the film that we'll be showing and the guest we'll be talking to available on our social media channels. Give us a follow. See who we're going to talk to. Right, that's the plug out of the way. On with today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Jake Cunningham, producer at Little Dot Studios, podcast maker, and one of the hosts of the Ghibliotech podcast. Hello, Jake. Hi, Sam. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for joining us. Nice to have you on the show. It's fair to say you're a podcast guy. I certainly am for my sins, you know. Um, you know, when you when you kind of start a podcast just because you work at the box office for a cinema chain and then you get roped into doing something for life. I mean, you couldn't relate to that, could you, Sam? We've all been there. We've all started Friends of House at a cinema company and thought, oh, these podcasts are pretty good. Let's do one of those for fun. Um, and then it becomes your full-time bloody job. No, what a what a what a fun, what a fun industry to be in. And also, yeah, I mean, you know, our origin stories are, are very, very closely linked in that respect, I think. They certainly are, yeah. I mean, I would kind of well you're you you're a precursor to me that's for sure i just i just hopped on the sam clements train um i thought this this guy's got it sorted he knows that if you work at a cinema an art house cinema chain and uh you like talking about films instead of talking to your customers about it why not just put a microphone between you and then uh get that conversation online and that, that that's what i did with curzon and uh yeah five years later i'm lucky enough to be making podcasts a lot of the time about films and TV all the time. It's my job. It's mad. I think like, that's the, it's the classic thing, isn't it? You know, how do you get into this? I mean, it's just weird happenstance and luck and working really hard. And yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing when you look back at the trail, the trail of destruction uh, that sometimes leads you to your, <laughs> your current position. Felt like it was quite an organic start for you. Was it literally hey, it would be fun if we do a podcast at the cinema company. Let's let's do that. That, that was pretty much it. So I was still at university at the time. And uh, my friend and I had had a student radio show where we played, uh, it was called The Sound Chaps, and we played soundtracks because there already was a film show. And so we just wanted our own film show. And our thing that made it different was that we played a bit of music in between us talking about the films. And then we both got a job at the cinema and uh, so we realised that we could just take our student radio show and uh, kind of turn that into something uh, for a podcast, which we had not done before. It had all been live. That was that was a long time ago. And now I've just come off the back of making a bespoke podcast series all about the Saw films. About six weeks ago, I'd never seen a Saw film. Now I am fully indoctrinated into the world of Jigsaw, happily declare myself one of his acolytes. Uh, I've made 
lots of very lots of strange podcasts about lots of different things um whether that is the england football team or the behind the scenes on uh, kind of different tv shows and highlighting the people that you've never really heard of like the uh, the intimacy coordinators and the editors and the composers and talking to them and uh, yeah so i have a lot of fun bouncing around talking to lots of people uh through the the medium of audio something that you and i love very much it's the, the joy of podcasts isn't it you can you, you can celebrate kind of the niche yeah i mean niches is where it's at and I, i've thrived from being ignorant because a few years ago I had uh, revealed at my desk that I had never seen a Studio Ghibli film. And thankfully, the person across my desk was a former guest of this very podcast, Michael Leader. And he is one of the, the scholars of Ghibli in the UK and across the world even. And he has gradually been getting me into all of these films across a few years now. And now so much of what I do is somehow related to Studio Ghibli as well, uh, which has been a real, real blessing. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of can't believe the direction that my podcast adventures have taken me into. I know with Ghibliotech, you know, the concept at the beginning was you hadn't seen these films before, but now you've spent so much time with them. You surely are an expert as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can actually use the phrase, I've written the book on it <laughs> because <laughs> that's uh, that's exactly what uh, Michael and I spent our lockdown doing. Uh, so this is, yeah, very exciting news is that the, the Ghibliotech book is coming out in September and it's kind of just the, the written version of our podcast journey, which was that Michael is the expert in all these things. I'm the novice. And our podcast was just about him kind of telling me the context and the history about all of Studio Ghibli's films from their origin to the modern day. So in our book, he kind of takes that side of each chapter, tells you what's going on behind the scenes. And then I jump on and kind of give each film a review uh, based on what Michael's told me. And uh, yeah, at the time I was just watching them for the first time. And now once you've written a book on something, you've got to watch them quite a lot. And so I'm uh, yeah, kind of deeply rooted in the world of Studio Ghibli now and what, what wonderful world it is to be deeply rooted in. How did you feel when that sort of potential project came up? You know, OK, we've got a chance to turn our podcast into a book. Well, I thought, you know, Michael's got it easy. He already did the research, you know, he already made the show notes. He already did that bit. His bit is fine. You know, whereas I, I had to just come up with mine on mic because it was meant to be my first reaction. So I, I, I think I've done the real hard work here. I've had to come up with some original ideas, whereas Michael just had to kind of go and copy his old homework. I'm joking. Of course, it was it was a uh, it was a challenge, absolutely, uh, and done so in lockdown. And so Michael and I couldn't kind of get together and uh, kind of hash it out. It was quite a strange experience. And uh, across the other side of London, I was just imagining Michael kind of hunkering down at the same time as me. We tried to plan the times that we were writing so that even if we were writing about totally different films, I could pop him a message and just say, can I just check that in... 1991 there was this at the box office and he can uh, be my uh, reliable encyclopedia of Ghibli to make sure that I'm on the right track with anything I'm writing. Was there something that you were particularly excited to write about for the book? I was really excited about writing about the Red Turtle, the Michael Dudok DeWitt Ghibli film, because it's a bit of an outlier and for our episode that we did on that one, we actually had Michael as a guest, so it was a bit different. Um, and so we felt like we maybe hadn't given it the treatment that we normally would for the other films. 
And so that was my chance to kind of delve into it. And I just, I think it's, it's an incredible film. I, I genuinely think it's one of the great masterpieces of this century. It, it is just incredible. And, you know, it's less than 90 minutes long, Sam. So uh, if I hadn't picked the film that I have picked for this episode, I could have fallen back and picked for, picked a Ghibli and gone with that one because it is utterly remarkable. Um, and until recently, it was the most recent Studio Ghibli film. So it was actually one of our last chapters. So it was almost like we got to the end and then I get this, like the, the pudding is just getting to write about this film that I absolutely adore. I've I've been lucky enough to read an early uh, version of the book, and and I had I had such a blast. It's a huge project. I'm <laughs> I, I felt for you, for you guys when I when I heard this was happening because it's quite a big undertaking. Looking at our whole studio's worth of work, I think you do such a good job of you know there's there's a lot of stuff in there for hardcore established fans. I think a lot of people be you know nodding along like yes yes Ghibliotech you've nailed it. But also if you're a novice, maybe you've only seen one or two movies, you want to learn a bit more. I think it's quite an accessible read. And I think that's quite a fine line to, to cross. Is that something you were quite keen to do going into it? Absolutely, because that's something that we built into the dynamic of the podcast from the very start. I think it was a real blessing that I hadn't seen any of the films before because we have so many listeners who came on the journey with me and that they were watching as I was watching and they were learning as I was learning. And we wanted to bring that to the book so that it's not a kind of this academic text that layers references on references uh, and kind of confuses you along the way because there's uh, so much going on. We wanted to treat kind of each chapter uh, individually as well as serving the whole narrative of Ghibli at the same time. So if you do have this just kind of as a coffee table book and you've just watched one of the films on Netflix and you think, ah, that was great, I'd love to learn a bit more about it, you can flick back into whatever chapter that is and learn a bit more about it like that. Or you can read the whole thing in one go and kind of get a sense of how the studio's life kind of unfolded. You do get a sense of uh, maybe us playing favourites uh, because I don't know if, if there were other writers on board with this that they would have dedicated uh, as much time to Whisper of the Heart as, <laughs> as we did or uh, as much time mentioning the films of Steven Spielberg, which is, I suppose, relevant to this conversation as well, because he gets a few nods in the book too. Fun on the Ghibliotech podcast, you guys, you know, occasionally, Jake, you might drop a Spielberg comparison. So it was nice that those made it into the book as well. And and I think as a fan of the podcast, you know, I think there's a lot of um, references and, and personality that your listeners will, you know, they'll recognise in the book. That's good to hear. Well, I'm glad you liked it, Sam. And I, yeah, if, uh, if people want to go and find it, it's... Uh... Depending on when you're listening to this, it might already be out. What's the book called if people are searching for it online, Jake? Ghibli Tech, the unofficial guide to the films of Studio Ghibli. In, you know, addition to making podcasts on uh, His Dark Materials and the Saw franchise and the works of Studio Ghibli, uh, I know you watch a lot of films. I follow you on Letterboxd. You're a, you're a movie guy. When you're at home trying to work out what to watch next, do you ever look at the runtime? I will definitely be checking when I'm at home. But at the cinema, it's free reign. You know, I, I love a long film at the cinema. I will happily go for that. And I've almost had to retrain myself during lockdown to watch longer stuff at home because um, at, we've, we've recently got a puppy. And so um, she dictates a lot of how my partner and I spend our evenings. And so a, a shorter film in the evening is certainly welcome. 
And I've also kind of got into just accepting that things have to have intervals, even if I, even if they weren't intended. You know, actually, I recently watched Lawrence of Arabia. That's got an intermission. Fantastic. You know, um, I've, I don't feel bad about splitting that across two nights uh, because the dog needs to go for a walk. I, I will I will check when at home. Although, the, I mean, at the weekend, I just said I watched Lawrence of Arabia. The other night I watched Shortcuts, the Robert Altman film. That's three hours and eight minutes. So, um uh, I think maybe maybe I'm getting lax, and I'll just I'll just watch anything, just anything to to get make me feel like I'm back at the cinema. You know, maybe I'm trying to watch longer films to uh, <laughs> to get my brain back into the cinema mode. You got to train. You got to have a you know, Rocky style training montage to get ready for the uh, you know those big four hour epics which are coming our way. I'm sure. Oh yeah, I've got my alarm set at two a.m. in the morning, guzzling popcorn, necking a giant coke, just getting my body <laughs> ready back to a, a cinema <laughs> lifestyle. Of course, I had to give you some homework. I had to let you decide what we'd be discussing uh, today. How did you how did you approach your your homework? Well, I approached my homework by thinking about, as I do most things, what would Michael Leader do, my co-host on Ghibliotech? And I know that when he picked Anvil, the story of Anvil, he went about that thinking, I always bloody talk about these Ghibli films. God, I need to talk about something else. What else do I like? that I don't get the chance to talk about what would I really enjoy. And he's, a, as we've established, an enormous metalhead. Sadly, not a metalhead. I'm a spielhead? I mean, I, I mean that suggests... Spiel is German for talking, and I do talk. So we're spieling spiel, Sam. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I thought, well, I love Steven Spielberg's films a lot. I've been doing my own retrospective at home over the last year and watching all of his films... Uh, so he's been in my mind for the last 12 months. And I was coming up on my rewatch uh, to Jewel, which was uh, for, well, was originally a TV movie, but then was recut to be a theatrically released film. And in both versions, it is less than 90 minutes. And I thought that is the perfect pick right there. Steven Spielberg's first film digitally remastered and fully restored. In Steven Spielberg's first full-length movie, Duel, a travelling salesman, Dennis Weaver, is harassed by a menacing 40-ton truck on a remote desert highway. Brilliant in its simplicity, the cult favourite takes road rage to a dangerous level as the traveller and the mysterious truck driver are pitted against one another in a motorised duel to the death. Fraught with psychological tension, this is a desperate battle for survival. I mean, that is an exciting bit of blurb. I mean, it's quite a short synopsis, full of hyperbole, but the film is pretty basic in its construction, so it does lend itself to to something like that. It really is. It's it's a very simple film. It's one man versus one truck. What else do you need? It's got emotion, you know, it's got action, it's got thrills, it's got spills. It's it's a, a near perfect film, you know, and what a way to announce yourself as a director. Because uh, he had done TV before this point. He's so young. You know, he, uh, in 69, he had directed an episode of Night Gallery, which was Rod Serling's TV show. And he's directing Joan Crawford, and he's like 20. It's mad. And then he goes on to make this. He was plucked from university, wasn't he? Did he go straight from film school, basically, to working at a big television studio? He never even finished. He dropped out. And 
he loves uh, to kind of self mythologize. I mean, he's his next film is a film about his own childhood. Like he he loves that and like never been confirmed that it actually happened, but he apparently just wandered onto the universal lot, found an empty office and just kind of stayed there and walked around the lot every day, carrying a briefcase as if he owned the place and learning about everything. And then he met Sid Sheinberg, who became like his first producer. And uh, he had made a short film called Amblin, uh, which is where we now know Amblin Entertainment, all, all of their films. Uh, that's where that stems from. Scheinberg took him under his wing and got him directing TV at, at like an extremely young age. But even at that point, like there were hallmarks of what he was doing. Like on that one episode of Night Gallery, the crew were like, "You need to stop moving the camera around. Just, just do the job. You know, just, just lock it off. And we just need to make this damn episode. You know." Uh, and he's there wanting to kind of be elegant with it and be dynamic and everything that we kind of know about how Spielberg frames something was there from the moment he started on the small screen as well. And I suppose like this is kind of a perfect transition for him because it is exactly a small screen to big screen thing because it was initially made as just a movie of the week. And then it was so good that they went back and shot a bit more of it and took it up from 74 minutes to 89 minutes and put it out on a theatrical run as well. And then, then he's off. <laughs> it's such a fairy tale journey, isn't it? You know, for this legendary filmmaker, you know, wandered around a film set, got to direct Joan Corf, did a Columbo episode. Um, hey, have a TV movie. Oh, it's so good. We'll do it. We'll release it theatrically. And it, yeah, it's no surprise that he's he's telling that story as his next film, or at least adapting elements of it. Because yeah, I think that's why I'm like constantly drawn back to him because he is in himself this fascinating story. You mentioned it there. It's uh, made in 1971, um, originally for TV, adapted from a Playboy article. <laughs> <laughs> it's Some people do read it for the articles. Spielberg does. Yeah. I mean, Richard Matheson, a great writer. He had written for The Twilight Zone. He wrote, you know, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes. He wrote that. He wrote I Am Legend. He had had this experience where he was on the way home from playing golf and uh, then on the radio, the JFK assassination had been announced. And so there was just this kind of atmosphere of terror in his car on the way home. And he was getting tailgated by a truck. And just like that intense emotion of that car journey fueled this. And uh, then afterwards, he just like drove around his area, making notes of everything that he saw and the experience of driving and baked that into this admittedly, yes, in Playboy article, which... Um, found its way to Spielberg. I like that within the story, Spielberg distances himself from the magazine. There's like, it just appeared on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> In, um, there's a there's an interview with him on the DVD I was watching. And, and yeah, he sort of says, my assistant brought me the story from Playboy mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and left it with me. You know, it's, yeah, he's, he's very clean, uh, clear to kind of state that. That won't be in the uh, biopic that he's making right now. And, and yeah, like I, I mean, we nowadays i think tv movies don't have the best reputation but if this was what a tv movie was like in the early 70s wow what a time yeah this is amazing like i you wouldn't believe it now like this is the kind of film that i think if someone was making it now it would be compared to something like lock you know it's kind of it's experimental there's i mean lock is almost all dialogue whereas this is almost no dialogue but it's that same sense of you're just locked into this scenario it's almost playing in real time and you're not veering away to any other b plot or anything and you're just having to focus on this i suppose like the amped up 
enormous version of Duel is Mad Max Fury Road. And that's what Duel would be if it was made now. But Duel is so simple that it is like, yeah, it's borderline an art house film. Please, I, I don't, let's not play games. What the hell are you talking about? I'm calling police. Police? You think that I won't? You're wrong, mister. You, you, if you think you can take that, that truck of yours and just use it as a murder weapon, just <laughs> killing people on the highway, well, you're wrong. You've got another thing coming. Man, you need help. Don't you tell me I need help. Hey! Hey! I think that when you're, if you're a main sort of set piece and, and, you know, the money's on the chase, like, let's shoot the chase really well. And Jewel does that. Like, it, it's, it's, it's an incredible watch and it's, it's got that early kind of silent film charm, you know, where you're just watching minutes of two cars going at each other on the road, so the truck's bumping someone's bumper or, you know, there's something incidental on the street. Um, yeah, it was really, and the chases are, they're really well shot considering this film had a tiny TV budget. Uh, but Spielberg brings this kineticism to uh, the camera work, you know, there's, and a lot of it's done in camera as well. I think he's very clear to stay, you know, we, we, we didn't overcrank the footage too much. Um, we had to do it a couple of times, but most of it was literally us driving with the camera on another car, um, you know, shooting these these trucks going at each other. It's his it's his blocking. It's the way that he moves objects around the camera that is so skillful in this film and throughout his filmography. I don't know if anyone listening has seen the Raiders cut that Steven Soderbergh made, uh, which was a few years ago, where Steven Soderbergh put Raiders of the Lost Ark in black and white and put the soundtrack to the social network over the top of it. And this was an exercise so that people could see that you can watch Raiders in a totally different environment with totally different sound and you still know exactly what's going on. Because like, you, you don't need the dialogue there. You don't really need to know what's happening because you can see it. You, know? you don't need anyone to explain it. And that's the same with Jewel. Um, his, his blocking is just amazing and his his awareness of screen geography and I think it's in the HBO Spielberg documentary who he says geography is one of the most important things to me and for this one he got um, one of the crew to map like literally make a map of the roads and so that he could print these out and he had his hotel room just covered in all of the elements uh, that would make up the map of the route that the the car and the truck go on. So that all points when making the film, he always knew exactly where they were going to be, where they'd come from, where they'd go. And you feel that as a viewer, you, you're you on that journey with them. And considering that, you know, the cars are always moving, it's not like we've got a room, we're going to block in the room, this is the line, um, you know, we're going to work this way. You know, everything is moving and the geography is constantly changing around you as an audience member. You still know exactly what's going on, where people are, how fast the cars are going in this case. I'm glad you mentioned the speed because you really feel it. You know, you feel the speed, you feel the mechanisms, you feel the gears because you look at, maybe like a, a Fast and Furious or Need for Speed type film where there is just endless gear shifts and endless revving and like they could be going at 200 miles an hour. I wouldn't actually know. Uh, they already looked like they were going really fast anyway. Um, but this, you you feel that difference and you can you totally get that this chap is scared about pushing that lever up to 80 miles an hour 
and like the car is shaking and that feels dangerous it really adds to um it feels lived in as well you know like this is a guy's beaten up car he's been on a long ride traveling salesman uh, he just wants to go home and like you feel like the struggle the car is dirty um you know and he doesn't want to be in there any longer than he needs to be um i i, I do love that like it could it could stop at any time the car could break down at any moment in this film and lest we forget the film does have Chekhov's radiator pipe introduced very skillfully early at the beginning oh my god it's so beautifully done and you don't even know it's happening you know just this little comment that uh, like two people make it and then it pays off in the third act that finally something is going to make this car break down it's it's brilliant the nice thing about it is it's not it's not done at the very beginning of the film. I think there's already you know like a brief chase between the truck and and the car, and you're like, okay, that was just a weird moment. Some weird truck driver with a weird vendetta. I'll pull in, I'll get my gas, and I'll you know get my car serviced. Is, is what seems to happen. So you're not really focused on the car's welfare at that point. You're more just thinking, what the hell was the beginning of that film about? And it's such a crucial you know a crucial line. And on a rewatch, it's quite a fun thing to note. And well, I suppose the opposite of the Chekhov's radiator hose is the flammable sign on the truck because from the moment that Dennis Weaver sits behind this truck we as viewers are plastered with the word flammable right in front of us because that's on the back of the truck and throughout the film we are reminded how flammable this truck is and that at any point this could explode and take Dennis Weaver with him. So he's got to be careful and he's got to kind of keep his distance. He doesn't want to push it. And it just all adds to this danger because we're constantly reminded how much of a threat this truck is. And then come the end of the film, (laughs) when the truck actually goes off the cliff and Dennis Weaver finally is free of this thing, it doesn't explode. That is a, is a good point. It kind of feels like an explosion because it's such a grand shot, but it's all the soil, isn't it? All the dirt uh, of, of the cliff. Mm. And, and it, I mean, it, they actually threw a truck off the, over a cliff uh, to get that shot. Um, and it's all captured in, I think, one single continuous shot. Uh, it's quite majestic. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're jumping around here, but I'm, I'm hoping people have maybe seen the film so they don't, they'll, they'll let me jump around. But yeah, like the way when the truck goes off the cliff and it, it, prop, it just dies you know because he picked this particular truck this 1955 peterbilt 281 because that he wanted a truck that looked like it has its has a face so that's why the lights are round so they could be like eyes and the grill is like so he wanted the most face like front for the truck so then when it does go off the cliff it dies and there's great bits like where you've got oil dripping as if it's blood and the wheel gradually turning until it stops so you feel like this has probably been a, a battle between two living things uh, rather than just this hunk of metal that's going to fall off a cliff and explode. And I also love that it doesn't explode because you kind of feel like, like with all good horror villains, there's a chance it could come back. A post credit sting with a wheel just starting to turn from a, a, a huge <laughs> pile of soil and dirt in the middle of a desert. Um, I mean, considering you know some of the sequels Spielberg's had to like the Jaws franchise, I'm surprised we haven't had a, a Jewel 2. Oh, can you imagine Jewel 4, uh, where it's like the brother of the truck is <laughs> <laughs> getting revenge on Weaver.
Hi listeners, I'm Martin. And I'm Sam. And together we host a podcast about Tom Waits called Song by Song. Uh, You may not know the music of Tom Waits very well, but that's what we're here for. We just finished talking about his Alice in Wonderland album. And yes, Tom Waits has an Alice in Wonderland album. (laughs) And we're about to get even weirder. In the early 2000s, Waits wrote an album based on Wojciech, an unfinished 19th century German play about a man who's made to eat peas until he goes mad. Oh my God, so mainstream. (laughs) It's his radio-friendly floor filler. It's not normal, but it is very interesting. So why not head over to songbysongpodcast.com or search for Song by Song wherever you listen to podcasts, maybe in the app you're listening on right now. The joy of the film is it's so simple, and you know what's at stake. Like Spielberg's so good at making it you know, clear what your protagonist's goal is, I think, in all of his films. In this, it's so, you know, they have that phone call very early on. Uh, Dennis Weaver calls his wife and his kid, you know, he needs to get home. And, um, you know, this truck comes out of nowhere and it's it's such a great villain. And it really is the truck because the masterstroke, I think, is not introducing the driver. We see an arm, we see a foot, um, but there isn't, a, you know, like a character with a motive. It wasn't some client that Dennis Weaver wronged, um, you know, in his, in his job or something. It's just this, you know, mad entity and and i really i really loved that i was i told a friend i was going to rewatch jewel to do a podcast on it and they were like oh yeah is that like is the truck haunted or something and like people have got their own mythology because it really is just like you know the truck is what wants dennis weaver not the driver inside yeah well and, and he has these these monster films that he does really well where it's just kind of this unknowable threat like jaws it's just it's great because I mean we we see we don't see a lot of the shark as well which is that's for another podcast how much of a masterstroke and an accident that is but he's scary because we don't know him and then with the dinosaurs as well we're not kind of in communication with the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park and the Lost World they are just scary because they're unknowable and maybe the scariest is the tripods in War of the Worlds just just terrifying and at no point are we kind of asked to empathize with them are they a kind of a complicated villain they they're just beings of destruction and they are just terrifying well you know but the t-rex is a hero so that's pretty cool <laughs> uh, yeah so, and i think for the most part you know we, we're spielberg's very good at showing us putting us in the protagonist's shoes and how they're reacting to these things you know again we're not sort of seeing you're not getting to know the villain particularly there's no backstory where you're like oh yeah it's reasonable that he wants to run dennis weaver off the road um it's unstoppable force comes in at random when this person least expects it and has to deal with it and that's what's compelling about it you know a normal guy in this case dealing with this monstrous situation that's it Uh, it's so base in what it's doing it's just stripping this guy back to uh if we're like going down going down maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, he's he's getting right down to the bottom i mean it's it's no coincidence that his surname is man m-a-double-n same trick that christopher nolan did with interstellar you know he's man but that's it that's so much about him and just having to get back home and just to be a man you know that, like, so, like so much of his films are just like what is it to be a man because he's looked at that what in in jewel in jaws close encounters empire of the sun it's awful but hook i suppose is about that as well catch me if you can all of these films are just like what what is it to be a man and this one is maybe the most direct about that and that's what he starts his entire filmography about that because I, I mean essentially this film is just a dick measuring contest because it's, 
here's this guy, he's got a terrifying big truck and I've only got a little car. But, you know, um, what I've got to get out of the way of him, but what if I can overcome him? Dennis Weaver's uh, character, David Mann, is sort of trying his luck, he's pushing his limits, he's seeing if he can avoid him, you know, in in the most obvious ways. And, and it sort of results in him pulling into a diner which is i think one of my favorite scenes in the film um no cars involved in this a roadside diner um full of people who all could be the uh the truck driver which i love i love that um so the, the suspense but also it's just quite a fun kind of visual gag to see all the truck drivers you know wearing cowboy boots denim jeans and yeah and him not knowing who to trust and at every point during the film he's just being emasculated by everyone because he is, he is not a cowboy. He doesn't have his leather boots and his jeans and his shirt and his cowboy hat. He's not as cool as these five guys that are all lined up and threatening him, even though they're not saying anything either. He's just constantly being put down or feeling like he's being put down. One of the scenes that um, was put into the theatrical cut was a phone call uh, between Dennis Weaver and his the and his wife. And his wife's on the other end saying that there was another man at a party that kind of was groping her and Dennis Weaver's character didn't step in or anything and he's not a man and I mean he is a man but he's (laughs) not a man and throughout we're just getting these reminders of uh kind of this failed domestic life that he's he can't get back to and what is his role in it I, I think just before the finale of the film there's just like for one second it like the camera whips around to see a woman putting up washing on the line and we just see this kind of little fragment of this blissful American scenario that he has had pulled from him just by this truck. I mean, there's like a fun, a few fun incidents along the way. Um, they uh, <laughs> He meets a lady who keeps snakes. Oh, the snake-arama. Uh, and, you know, a spider gets on his leg as well, a big tarantula. Yep, I mean, he's he's picking up gags for Indiana Jones there. There's snakes is absolutely something that he'll just go on and reuse there. Snakerama appears again in 1941, uh, which is not an amazing film. And then 1941 itself has Jaws in it. He clearly had a great time making this film and lifting stuff from it uh, to take to his later works. And it's clearly inspired stuff as well. Like the... um, Another scene that he added to the theatrical was the scene, a really great scene, where he parks up by, um, by train tracks uh, and then the truck kind of comes up behind him and nudges him towards the train. And you've got that ding, ding, ding that the uh, American train tracks have. And that instantly recalled that same bit with Roy in um, Close Encounters, because that ding, ding, ding is so much part of that, the kind of sonic fabric of Close Encounters as well. It's like this is it's so much of a blueprint. And I think it's only after having done this retrospective in the last year or so but then going back to Jewel, seeing how much of the filmmaker of the next 50 years is already here. So in Jewel, have you got, if you had to pick one scene, uh, have you got a favourite scene? Ooh, is it basic to pick the truck going off the cliff? Because I, 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 I just love it. It's because I didn't know that it doesn't explode. And I just, I just thought that's what's going to happen then the first time I watched it it's just ingrained in me that that has to be the finale of this film you can't spend 90 minutes with this truck that's telling you it's going to explode 
And then at the end, not do it. I just thought it was wild. It really is like a cinema movie. So I'm glad that we'll get to play this at our Under 90 Minute Film Festival on the big screen, where it belongs. Because can you imagine listening to that score, listening to those car engines, seeing the sweat on the big screen? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the sound because I think the sound is so key to the film because he's almost setting up like a non-verbal language throughout because you've got just the grinding of the gears and the exhausts and uh, actually he's playing with kind of what's on the radio and kind of aligning what's happening on the radio with what's going on inside Dennis Weaver's head and again none of it is dialogue and he's just heightening these emotions to add to the threat of that truck and even when the truck going back to the best moment when the truck falls off the cliff like the sound it makes then and he had taken like a, an effect from the creature in, from the Black Lagoon and merged the sound of that with a B-movie from a T-Rex to give it this howl when it goes over. And that howl was so good that when they finally kill the shark in Jaws, they use the same sound. Like, <laughs> it, it, the sound of this film is amazing. And yeah, I think that's something that I have missed because I've never seen it in the cinema. And it's crazy to me to think that probably in the grand scheme of things, most people haven't. Because, uh, yeah, it was a TV movie. It's probably got, like lived uh, through kind of VHSs and rentals and just being passed around as more of a cult thing. But, God, like with a proper sound system, this on a big screen would be amazing. It'd be so intense. I mean, like Spielberg puts so much attention, you know, care and attention into the post-production on all of his movies. They, they, they are great cinema films. Uh, and I'm sure he did that with Jewel as well. Like, I think if you played this through those cinema speakers, we'd notice things that we've not heard before on our, you know, on our TVs. We should just do this. Let's get this film in yeah. the cinema. Um, would love to see that. I mean, the nice thing is because it's Spielberg, you know, it has been cleaned up on home release. It has been digitally remastered as the Blu-ray shouts at you. And it looks really good, you know, for a film from 1971 shot on 16mm film. Um, um, you know, this is a really good looking film. This is the year to make it happen. It's 50 years old. You know, let's um, let's get the 50th anniversary jewel screening happening, Sam. What will definitely happen is it will play in our fictional film festival where you have a blank check to put on your perfect, your dream screening of jewel. If I could give you a print of this film, you know, and the keys to any cinema in order land, where would you like to show this movie? Okay, so you've heard of the drive-in cinema and you've heard of a drive-through restaurant, but what about the drive-on cinema and we literally, we watch the film whilst we are all driving and I want to get into the desert that they did Fury Road and in fact, I mean, we could just take the entire crew and all the props from Fury Road and we put the big screen on the back of the war rig and we are all in the little cars behind it and we're driving along and we are tuned into the radio frequency and the big screen. So there's some amazing projectionist is having to drive at exactly the same speed as the war rig to keep the projection playing onto the back of that and everyone is having to drive in sync with the film and it will cause so much anxiety <laughs> and so much stress for everyone that I think it will just be perfect. Like, come the end of that, people are just going to be kind of absolutely caked in sweat. Uh, and I feel like, you know, in terms of immersive cinema, uh, we would have done really well to recreate the feeling that Spielberg is trying to convey in the film. That sounds incredible. Wow. What a the most uh, elaborate screening yet. 
but I love it and perfect for this film. Um, an already stressful film watched in the most stressful circumstance. Yeah, and I get motion sickness. I can't even go on a double-decker bus. So what am I going to be like driving in a car, chasing a car, watching a film that's about a car chase? It's going to be a nightmare. But yeah, maybe I'll take a travel sickness pill beforehand and I'll be okay. There's those, you know, those bracelets. Have you tried those? The travel bracelet things? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, though, though you get a complimentary one on your way. Maybe in. we should include that into the ticket price. Uh, some seasickness pills and some, uh, yeah, some travel wristbands. I, lo- I love how, you know, big and potentially messy the screening could be. <laughs> and expensive. And so expensive. What do you think is the perfect cinema snack for Jewel? Well, it's a, a cheese sandwich on rye. And a tiny beer. <laughs> there we are. You get a motion sickness <laughs> bracelet, a, a cheese sandwich and a tiny beer. We can make little packed lunchboxes. I like this. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's suitable. That works for the, for the screening. And, and I sort of like, you know, in the spirit of your screening, as well as having the film play whilst in motion, maybe we should have a Q&A afterwards, also whilst moving, and maybe the speaker has some sort of megaphone uh, or something to talk to the crowds. Uh, but if you could pick someone, you know, to talk about this movie after screening, who would you like to hear from? Oh, I mean, yeah, there's one person that is pretty obvious to pick because you'd love to talk to Steven Spielberg about it, but uh, let's not pick him because everyone will pick him. Um, who would be good? Uh, are we allowed people that are dead? We can resurrect the dead for this show. Well, then I would love to get Sid Sheinberg on for this because I want clarification on whose copy of Playboy it was. But I would also just love to get the actual story of like the the origin story from him. And I'm still Sheinberg was a film producer. He's never going to tell us what the actual story of Spielberg showing up on the Universal lot was you know I just want to hear him and maybe Spielberg's kind of sat in the front row and he's a bit embarrassed and he's got his cap over his eyes and Scheinberg's on stage telling these stories of this kind of young kid who rocked up with his little suitcase and his Bolex and he told me he wanted to make movies and uh, then in six months he was on set with Joan Crawford and uh, I think I would just fawn over that scenario and just happily watch uh, watch him tell stories of the young Spielberg. Cool. Okay. I yeah, I love that. All right. Well, we'll do this. We'll do the most dangerous and expensive screening of the festival <laughs> for Steven Spielberg's duel. Well, I mean, he's he's Mr. Box Office, you know. He, well, maybe he can expense it. I'm. I, yeah, yeah we'll he can send a check to to Spielberg. He'd be up for it. Fiftieth birthday party for the film. Yeah, I think it's fair. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jake. Thank you for picking Jewel. I'm really glad we've got a Steven Spielberg film in our festival now. I can't believe it's taken this long, you know? Biggest filmmaker of all time. Well, I'm glad to have... I've flown the flag for an underdog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad we're finally talking about the films of Steven Spielberg. Uh, It's a broad church, the under 90-minute thing, and we don't have too many under 90-minute blockbusters, but I, I feel like this... This sort of is uh, kind of by association, even if it's not by the original box office numbers. It's the 50th anniversary this year as well, listeners. So, you know, if you haven't watched the film recently, definitely pick up the Blu-ray, have a watch. It looks amazing. It's quite an experience. And I guess speaking of things to pick up, Ghibliotech book. Yes, you're you're so much better at this than me. Please, please buy the Ghibliotech book, whether you've only seen one Studio Ghibli film or you've seen all of them. Or if you're like me four years ago and you hadn't seen any of them now's your chance uh buy the book watch them on netflix read along with us listen to the podcast we would love to have you join our library there's a link in the show notes listeners do do check that see jake's work listen to the podcasts have a look at the book and uh and jake if people want to follow you on social media where should they go i'm on twitter i'm there at jake h cunningham 
I can't promise it will be entertaining, but I am there. And it's the best place, I think, to see, you know, what podcasts you're you're producing and, and working on next. Because, uh, yeah, it's always exciting to see if, you know, if you're working on a new show. Oh, thank you, Sam. You're, you're too kind. And this has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Jake. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 